Hello and welcome to the Agenda podcast this Thursday, February the 29th, an extra day this year. And it was a busy, busy show today. First up, we were talking congestion on the Dubai Metro because lots of people have been posting videos online suggesting the lines are getting busier. Is it a problem or is it actually a good thing? We asked transport expert Professor Graham Curry. We also took a look at generational wealth, specifically as a result of a new report suggesting millennials are about to move from being the poorest generation to the richest. But does it rely on getting an inheritance? We got into it with personal financial expert Carol Glynn. We were taking a look at the government games which are getting underway in Dubai today. Did anyone see a load of civil servants climbing the Burj Khalifa yesterday? Yeah, really, that's a thing. We found out more with the organiser of the games and we tried to solve the musical mystery that's got the internet in a spin with forensic musicologist Joe Bennett. Good morning. How are you? Welcome to the agenda today. We are talking money. I know. It's, it's not the easiest topic to discuss, but we are going to get into it because we want to know who has it, who doesn't, and perhaps a bit more controversially, how old they are. And first up, I'm wondering, do you remember this guy? First home buyers, second home buyers, and a lot of people won't own a house in their lifetime. That is just the reality of where we're going. So you think that young people have now got the prospect of never owning a home? Absolutely, when you're spending $40 a day on smashed avocado and coffees and not working. I, of course, Absolutely. That's Australian businessman Tim Gurner on 60 Minutes with a fairly annoying comment that went viral back in 2017. Now, I've got to declare an interest here. I am, in fact, a millennial, albeit a geriatric one, I gather. I'm 1982, so I think I just make it into that bracket. And I'm going to own up here, put my hands up. I bought my first property because I got a deposit from my parents. I was very, very fortunate. I think a lot of people of that generation have really struggled to get onto the property ladder. And I think a lot of us... if we're honest, who did, did so because we had help. But what was interesting to me was that there was a second part of businessman Tim Gurner's speech on 60 Minutes that didn't go viral and was probably just as relevant to millennials because it seems like he might have been onto something. The only thing that gives me a little bit of comfort is the fact that parents have inherited gigantic wealth. The baby boomers have gone and we have created this incredible wealth throughout the baby boomers. Everyone's talking about affordability and housing crises and unaffordability. The realistic fact is there is this incredible amount of wealth that has been created and is sitting with the baby boomers that will be passed down. There is going to be a transition of wealth at a very in the next 20 to 30 years, which will see a lot of these people be able to buy their own home. But I think some sort of measure now to encourage parents to be able to pass down money earlier, I think it'd be a great thing. And that's prophetic, apparently, because a new report from Knight Frank says those born between 81 and 2000 are in line for a, quote, seismic windfall over the next 20 years, thanks to those property assets accumulated by their parents and the generations before them. Now, the research found that 75% of millennials expect their wealth to increase this year. That's against 53% in the baby boomer generation. That's those born between 1946 and 64. And that's... All fine and well if you're going to get an inheritance. We asked these millennials about their financial situation. Here's Susan. My biggest expenses are rent. I am saving little money, but not as I want to. I don't consider myself to be financially stable and I will be receiving an inheritance. Eamon, on the other hand, has a slightly different story. My greatest expenses right now, education allowance just took over. I have three daughters. Very close second is rent, my housing. Everything else is pretty reasonable here in Dubai. You can scale it down if you need to. As far as savings, um, I do have some side hustles. So for my primary income, I'm not really able to save. But because of my freelancing and side hustles, I've been trying to put a little bit of money for a down payment on a home. Um, I don't know if I'll ever be able to catch up with the market, though, considering the size of the house that we're looking for. But I do consider myself fairly financially stable because I don't have any loans, any credit card debt, anything like that. So... I'm fairly self-sustained. As far as an inheritance, I don't believe we're going to get a significant inheritance. My father owns a home, but we're six siblings, so it'll probably get split up eventually. But it's not really something I factor in. 
Interesting stuff. Now, before we go any further, I would really like to hear from you on this. If you're willing to share, you can do so anonymously. Do drop me a text on 4001. What's really interesting here, though, is that depending on where you live, it's not actually necessarily all about inheritance. In fact, the study found that in emerging cities, particularly, millennials are doing it for themselves, essentially, often through property investment. Manila tops the table for growth in top-level property wealth, with the Bahamas close behind. And while prices have fallen from their peak in previously popular cities like London and my native Edinburgh, it seems property is still the way that a lot of people are improving their financial situation. Producer Zina is here in the studio with me. Z, does it surprise you to hear that millennials are getting wealthier in the Philippines? Not at all. So we have a growing middle class. And there are two things that I think spurs this growth. Uh, one of them is, you know, people like me that are earning Dubai money and uh, buying property in the Philippines in pesos. So um, it, you know, because I'm earning more here and compared to Dubai property, Philippine Phil, Phil, property in the Philippines is much cheaper, so I can afford that. And the other thing is during the pandemic, there are a lot of Filipinos that are, have started doing online work. So, for example, my friend is a doctor, she's a pediatrician, but she's doing, she, she's reviewing medical documents for a doctor in New York. So she's earning dollars, New York money, but she lives in a remote part of the Philippines, so she doesn't really have a lot of expenses, and she's built three houses there. Wow, that's really interesting. I want to hear from you on this. If you've got stories like those that Zina just shared, please do send us a text on 4001 and let us know. I'm joined now in the studio by Carol Glynn. She's a personal finance expert with Conscious Finance Consulting. Carol, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for coming in to join me. Now, this article suggests that millennials are about to go from being the poorest generation to the wealthiest. Does Does that kind of make sense to you? I think it makes sense for a certain percentage. I mean, I'm also, like you said, like that, a geriatric millennial. I'm 81. So I just barely cut in there. I think that, yes, there is a lot of wealth in that older generation, but it's not the majority. From what I see, it really is not the majority. And for most people, and if I even look at my social circle and and my clients that I work with, they're working on their finances now because they know they don't have that fallback in the future. So if you are fortunate enough to be in that, they don't give percentages in any of the reports. You know, it's like talking about the two trillion that's available there. But also, and even a point that I had to um, what one of your earlier clips was, we can't assume that one person's going to also inherit that large wealth. I mean, I'm one of five. So everything is going to get divided, which dilutes it too. So I think there's a few that are fortunate, but I genuinely don't believe it's the majority. And so it's, so we are being told that millennials in, in some parts of the world in particular, you know, we were hearing about the Philippines example, it's not necessarily about inheritance. It's more that they are managing to make wealth for themselves, whereas in some parts of the world, that's not the case. Why do you think we're seeing such a discrepancy in how we're seeing that wealth being built up and distributed? I think it largely comes down to personal experience. I think for millennials, most of us, um, well, from the earlier, or look, I mean, maybe the geriatric millennials, we remember the crash. So we know what it's like to not have for everything to fall apart. And I think that has driven a lot of people to take responsibility for their own. There's a lot of frustration there with, you know, house prices just constantly increasing. But I will say there's a lot of conversations with my clients about they are getting ready. They are being very intentional with their savings, with earning extra money where they can. And more and more I'm hearing them say so that I'm ready when it comes down. Fantastic stuff. We're going to be getting into this a bit more, which is going to be music to the ears of this guy. This is content creator Robbie Scott. Take a listen. We're not getting angry and whiny and entitled because we can't work nine to five. Yes, we can. We do it every day. We're holding up our end of the deal, right? We're staying in school, okay? We're going to college, okay? We've been working since we were 15, 16 years old. We've built a huge line of credible references, doing everything that y'all told us to do so that we can what? Still be living at our parents? (laughs) I know people in their mid-30s who have been working for 20 years. That's like 70% of their waking life. They have been working and they still cannot afford to purchase their first home. It seems that that is changing. Apparently, we are about to witness the most seismic transfer of wealth the world has ever seen. And this is 
working differently, but is a trend more or less across the globe. Certain cities were looking at it being as a result of inheritance, but in others, it is largely apparently because millennials have invested well, because they have been working very hard for a number of years, and now it's Essentially, it's kind of starting to pay off. I'm joined in the studio now by Carol Glynn. She's a personal finance expert with Conscious Finance Consulting. And Carol, you were saying, I mean, we have this sort of misconception that when we talk about a generation that is the same globally, but actually here in the Middle East and specifically in Dubai, the situation for that generation is is very different depending on where you've arrived in the city from, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. It's completely relative and what your, your long-term plan is. So for me, if I want to go back to Ireland, the cost of doing that, the house that I would like to purchase in Ireland would be very different to my colleague who's from a different location who might not have the same house price costs. It might be more, it might be less. So it really depends on your individual situation and what your goals are. What is it that you're trying to achieve with your money? We can't be sweeping with this that you I often see, you know, you must earn X amount of money to do what you want to do. But every country you look at is individual, the costs, it, it, it really you have to look at the individual and the location. And I think a lot of us are quite misled about what the costs are elsewhere. The the gener- yeah. sort of This generational divide, if you look at it on a global level, the report I was reading today was saying that actually Manila is the city where we're seeing the biggest increase in property prices. And producer Zena was saying to me earlier that she has a friend who moved home to Manila and is paying twice as much there to rent a property as they were paying in Australia. It's So I think there's this idea that it's almost country by country that you can look at when actually, really, it's city by city. As Zina was saying, you might pay less to to build a house in the Philippines in a rural district, but actually Manila is an incredibly expensive city to have property in. Yeah, and that applies to every country. I was only having this conversation the other day as well about, you know, someone asked me what would be a good price to pay for a house to rent in Ireland. And I said, well, where are you talking about? Mm -hmm. If you want to buy in Dublin, that's a totally different set of considerations than somewhere in the country in a small town that has an industry that's supporting the population there. So, and, and that applies across the world. And we do have these sweeping assumptions that certain countries are cheaper, therefore they have it easier. And it's not true anymore. And I think the Manila one will shock a lot of people. There is that assumption that the Philippines is a more lower cost location. Not necessarily. So Zena was talking about the impact of digital working, that mm. th- that has enabled a lot of people to earn salaries that are larger than they might earn working in their home country, but to stay in their home country so they can lower their costs and, and earn bigger money. And of course, that's why we've traditionally seen a lot of people coming to Dubai is to earn more money here than they might at home. But a lot of that money gets remitted. So how do those sort of millennial generation and younger workers who are here and sending money home, how do they build their wealth? It is that, that's sending money home constantly, and my, which is fantastic because they're very intentional, they're here for a purpose. When someone comes here, for example, to the UAE with a purpose of, I want to save a deposit, would be a very traditional one, or I want to buy a house by the time I go home, and they're constantly just sending money home because they have that purpose for what they're doing here. The issue arises when people don't generate that kind of, if you want to call that wealth, or retain the wealth that they're earning, is when they don't have a reason for it, and then we can get caught up on the buy lifestyle, which is a different conversation. My only then next consideration is that we are missing a trick, and I do see this with millennials. We do have this sense of safety around our money, and it's really a priority, so we leave it sitting in bank accounts. And and we're missing out on the potential wealth that we could be bringing to that money with that money. So we're, we, I, my experience, we tend to be very good at saving. We're very intentional because we never, we never felt we had a safety net. We didn't have reports to say, oh, this, you know, inheritance is coming, but also when and, you know, I want a house before I'm 60. So we, we save and we save, but we're reluctant to do anything with it. And I think we're really missing out in generating some wealth there, be it in interest bearing accounts or investing it until the point of time that we need it to buy that house. Why do you think that is? Do you think we're daunted by the idea of investment? Do you think that's a scary word for a lot of people? Does it just read as risk? Yes. Yes, I think um, a lot of us are scarred by 2008 and what happened there and what happened to our family. So if we look at that older generation and what they went through, and if we as children witnessed that or if we're that bit older and we experienced it coming out of university or whatever it might have been, that um, we are scared and we are scared to lose our hard-earned money. And many of my clients will say to me, I know I should invest. There's that always should, but I don't know where to start and I'm terrified and I do not want to lose my money. 
It's a it's an interesting tactic, isn't it? This idea that we, we put it into savings account and we think it's safe. We've been hearing a bit more from a few more millennial and Gen Z residents. Let's take a listen. I'm a millennial and my biggest expense at the moment is definitely my rent. I am saving money since moving to Dubai. Yes, I will get inheritance. I am Gen Z. My biggest expense would be monthly car payments and everything to do with transportation. I've finally been able to start saving money. I don't consider myself financially stable as yet, but we're getting there. And uh, I'm not sure about inheritance. I'm a millennial. My biggest expense is my rent. I'm not really saving any money at the moment. I do consider myself relatively financially stable and I will probably get a very, very small inheritance. But to be honest, I hope my parents spend it all so they have a good time. I'm 24 years old, so yes, I would consider myself a Gen Z. Currently, my biggest expense is my car loan. I am trying to save money on the side as well. I don't have a lot of expenses at the moment because I do stay with my family. So I do consider myself financially stable because of my investments and my savings. I'm not really sure about the inheritance. I'm a millennial. My big expenses are housing, car, and eating out. I'm not saving as much money as I thought I would. I'm not saving 60% of my salary. I do consider myself financially stable. I do watch where I spent at most times. On inheritance, I currently don't have any inheritance. Eating out, I'm going to take the fifth on that one. I'm not going to talk about <laughs> how much I spend on eating out. But I wonder, I mean... I apologise in advance for this question and especially asking you it when we've only got 30 seconds to go. But is there a sort of universal rule that we should look at to consider whether we are in a safe place financially where we could start investing? Is it having one month's expenses or three months or six months in savings, for example? My one and only should with money is to have that emergency fund or as I call it, your cash cushion. So working out your living it costs and I would say at least to start off about three months of that and then there's whole other considerations but set aside three months of living and then anything over and above that be very intentional either invest it start saving for that deposit put it in an interest bearing account but give it a purpose but I would say first manage your debt as well make sure you have that under control if not cleared and have your emergency fund and then the rest of it's free money for wealth. Amazing Carol Glynn there personal finance expert at Conscious Finance Consulting. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to The Agenda. We're taking a look now at a Dubai resident who broke... I think it was a world record this weekend. We're going to be finding out a bit more about Kuwaiti-born Faisal Al-Musawi. He is now officially the world's fastest diver using an underwater wheelchair. That's after a challenge at Dubai Mall's aquarium that saw him clock up a time of 37 minutes to dive 400 metres there. Producer Zina Zalamea has been meeting Faisal. Zina, tell me a bit more about this. You know, when you meet someone or, you know, when you see an article about someone and you immediately know that you want to meet that person, like what motivates him, what drives him? I mean, this is a guy that smashed two world records previously as a diver. And I learned a lot about him. We had a chat earlier this morning. Kuwaiti-born Faisal Al-Masawi. He's actually now back in Kuwait with his family after breaking that world record on Monday in Dubai Mall. And... Obviously, we have to start from the beginning when before the accident happened, um, which left him uh, paralyzed uh, and unable to walk. But before that, he was actually a very good football player. Wow. And he was going to go pro, but his hopes were dashed after that car accident in 2005. And he told me how it happened. My car, it's like turned over many times. My back, it's hit something inside the car and it's broken in the middle. I lost the control in my legs and no sensation also. I will become like a paraplegic. All my life changed. I thought I lost everything. Yeah. Goodness me. Yeah, it was tragic. It was tragic. And you could really, so I was Zooming with him and you could really see the expression on his face that, you know, he'd lost all hope. Um, But because he was very competitive as a footballer before, you know, a few years after that, he decided, I'm going to go into sports again. I'm going to get into sports, maybe not football, but something else. And he tried so many things before he got into diving. 
I'm trying many things, gym, kickboxing, basketball, many things, but I'm searching some sports, not special just for people with disability, because I need to feel some challenge. I'm thinking about the swimming and diving, but I have very big problem with the diving because before my disability, I have a phobia from the sea. So when I was walk, so I have two challenge my disability and the phobia from the sea. I join with the dive team because I need to feel the challenge as a normal person. I don't like to feel I am a person with disability. Now I am a rescue diver. I need to feel I am a normal person. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, he's a rescue diver. He's got all the, you know, certification for advanced diving. And he usually dives without his wheelchair. He just likes challenging himself. So what he does is um, he wears, I think, fins on his hands <laughs> to, oh, okay. to swim faster. Um, and he broke two diving records, as mentioned earlier. In 2018, he was the fastest scuba diver in the world, beating an Irishman without disability. So um, he joined that category. There were no categories then for diving for people with disabilities. But in 2022, because of his 2018 world record, the Guinness World Records actually started doing world records for people with disabilities. And at that time, in that year, he became the fastest snorkeling swimmer against the current for people with disabilities in this category. That's superb. I love that. I love that the, 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 you are now recognising the, the extra effort with the records. But it's amazing that it took until 2022 to actually start listing these records as well. Exactly. And that was the whole point of him uh, breaking that record in 2018 to show people that, hey, you know, we need representation, we need inclusion, and it doesn't matter what re world record you want to break, you know, if if we can do it, then you have to include us in it. And he wasn't in his wheelchair when he broke the 2022 uh, world record for the fastest snorkel swimmer against the current. But this time on Monday, he decided he would be in his wheelchair while diving. He really wanted to make a point. Now, he chose to do a buy aquarium in Dubai Mall because of the mall's footfall. You know, we've all seen those crazy videos of people just crowding Dubai Mall because he wanted as many people as possible to see him. Um, and it was more powerful if people saw him, you know, this image of him diving in a wheelchair and breaking a world record. Imagine if you, if you had a disability, you yourself are in a wheelchair and you see that happening. It's fascinating. And I mean, that visibility and representation is so important, isn't it? And it's such a powerful picture, that photograph of him that's been in the newspapers this week, showing him mid-challenge. It's, it's brilliant. It is brilliant. And I asked him, you know, what's next for Faisal? Well, he basically wants to advise other people with disabilities on how to um, challenge themselves physically and mentally. And maybe some of those people can be can become world record holders as well. Brilliant stuff. Zina Zalamea there having met with Faisal Al-Masawi. He is now the world's fastest diver with an underwater wheelchair. Morning, morning. Welcome back to the agenda. Right, I want to know, do you hear this every day? Doors closing. If so, you might have noticed it getting a bit busier lately. Quite a bit busier, in fact, if TikTok is to be believed. In recent weeks, it seems a trend has appeared with scores of Metro users posting videos of their commute and saying they've been even unable to get on or off trains that are now much busier than they used to be. Chloe Hillier is producer of Afternoons with Helen Farmer and she's one of those passengers. She says she's noticed real congestion on her trips home after the show. I catch the metro every afternoon at around five o'clock. Uh, I get it from Internet City Station to Healthcare City Station. It costs me about 10 dirhams. But I have seen people not to get off at their stop because the amount of people shoved into the metro is insane. It's just you cannot move. You can barely breathe. And I pay gold class, so it costs me about 10 dirhams. But it is just so busy. And the amount of difference that five or 10 minutes makes is insane as well because if I'm 10 minutes later than normal I barely can move as well so it's just crazy how busy it is. Dubai resident Fifi's also noticed the trains getting busier lately. 
I've been using the metro for years now, and I've noticed that over the years it has gotten busier because more people are using it, hopping on board. But despite that, I must say that they're still efficient, and it's always on time. So uh, it doesn't matter if it gets hectic; I still am going to use the metro. Now, I've been thinking about this quite a bit because I take the metro a lot. I live right next to a station. I'm very lucky. So I do actually take it, particularly if I'm traveling in the evening and I want to go to downtown or somewhere like that. I would far rather sit on the metro and read my book than be in the car. And I've not noticed it getting this much busier, but I'm not commuting. I'm not traveling at peak time. I used to do that when I lived in London and that was so much worse. Now, I'm five foot three. That is, I have discovered perfect armpit height if you are on the London underground. I've had a few unpleasant experiences and I've always found the the metro here to be a lot easier. Zina, how does it compare here to Manila? Oh, it gets really busy in Manila because, you know, we're um, in Manila, I think in Quezon City, there are tens of millions of people that have, you know, immigrated from the provinces. So we're a very crowded city and most of us can't afford cars. So for them to get from point A to B to their place of work, the metro, or as we call it, the MRT or the LRT, is their only mode of transport. And I've noticed in recent years, because of the surge in the population, I think there are no peak times anymore. It's just busy uh, every single day, 24-7, day in, day out. I think that's the thing. It's it, That's how the roads are feeling here, isn't it? And I mean, we've been talking a lot about trends recently here and the fact that there's no question the city's getting busier. We've seen a lot of people moving in. And so part of the reason that the metro is so busy is because there's just, there's more people. And of course... The network is still being built. Officials are already responding to this increased demand, but it takes time. Chris Seymour, MD of Mace, was telling us recently about that work on the Metro Blue Line, which is now being built. I think the important piece about this line is going to pick up those big population centres that go through Murdiff, International City. And so um, residents there are going to love the fact that this, uh, this extension is finally getting the go-ahead. So we're building new lines. Is there anything else we can do? I wanted to find out from Professor Graham Curry. He joins me now on Teams. He is the Chair of the Public Transport and Professor of Public Transport Engineering at Monash University in Australia. And he's also the man who's written more reports on public transport strategy than literally any other expert in the world. So who better to ask? Graham, good morning. How are you? Good morning. It's great to have you on. You've been listening. You've been sitting there patiently on my screen, listening to all of those foxes. Now, we've spoken in the past about the fact that the Metro was perhaps underutilised, that there were too many of us in our cars, not enough of us on the network. Is this actually a good thing if we're seeing it get as busy as we're seeing networks in other cities? Yes, it's what you want. It's success. It's very popular because it is more efficient than car travel. So, uh, you know, good for good on uh, Dubai Metro. You're doing well, but you do need to manage the peaks better. And how do you do that? How do you manage a peak when you're talking about tens, twenties, thousands of people getting on a train all at once? How can that be managed? It's a simple equation. You either have more supply of trains or you have less demand. Now, more trains, my understanding is you're running trains something like every three minutes in the peak, which is outstanding, by the way, compared to other railways. But in theory, you could actually run uh, trains every two minutes, which means you need more trains and you'd have more space or you could have longer trains. Um so you can do supply. You can even do clever things like load passengers boarding the train on one platform and get them leaving the train on the other platform so that there's less delay. Uh, but one of the ch- that's very expensive and takes time. You've got to buy trains and you've got to build platforms. But the cheap way of doing this is to spread the peak demand out. And how do you do that? I'm guessing that comes down less to the transport providers and more to employers and commuters. Well, it's a, it is, you're right, it's more complicated than just the passengers. But there are many people who are travelling in the peak that don't need to, such as tourists. You could have a tourist ticket, which is cheaper for tourists, encourages ch- tourism, 
but is only available for use in the off-peak time. And this way, tourists would be encouraged to travel less in the peak. Another thing you can do is have uh, cheaper or even free fares before the peak starts in the morning. Uh, there are free fare programs in my city, Melbourne, in Hong Kong and Singapore have tried these. And what happens is you offer free fares if you arrive in the city before seven o'clock. What happens is a share of the peak passengers start traveling a bit earlier um, and that helps alleviate the capacity. That's so interesting. Just yesterday, we were speaking to Chris Seymour from Mace Middle East about the infrastructure project that's going to see a major upgrading of the Alkale Road. Now, what I thought was interesting is that he was talking about how difficult it is to essentially plan ahead for transport. Take a listen to this. The, the theme around building ahead of the demand is a complex one because whilst the communities are getting built, the RTA, as if you like the roads developer, has to first of all test people's behaviours and what else might happen and what other developments are going to come up and what speed to be able to monitor where is the traffic going to be concentrated. You can do it with traffic modelling, but it's important to actually see what is happening, how is the city developing. With a road, before you build it, or before you improve it, you've got to be very sure you need it because it's a, it's a big, expensive, fixed asset. A road is a road. It can't be repurposed into anything else. Unlike, a, for example, a building, you can repurpose into something else. If, for example, you build an office building and uh, it's possible to repurpose that into residential, road is a road. And so before you build it, you've got to be sure you need it. It's quite frustrating for residents, but we tend to see roads following the demand rather than being ahead of the demand. Now, presumably, the same thing goes for railway lines. You can't exactly repurpose them. But what can we do to answer the issue of congestion on public transport networks? I've got Professor Graham Curry joining me now. He is the chair of the Public Transport and a professor of transport engineering at Monash University in Australia. And he's written more reports on public transport strategy than anyone else in the world. Is it the same, Graham? Roads and and rail networks, do you have to wait and see where the demand is before you can really build them? I uh, agree with what was said, but uh, I think you can plan ahead. And many countries have done this, you know, um, particularly when there's hope for new development sites, because good transport systems can encourage the development. It does, however, require government investment early, and it is a bit risky. But, you know, governments are the best place to to handle risk, uh, certainly if they've got a developing future and they want to encourage that. Now, one thing that was said yesterday when we were discussing road congestion that kind of, it surprised me, but it probably shouldn't have, if I'm honest. Like, logically, it makes sense. I was told that if you've got a city like Dubai where it's long and thin and it goes along a coast, which essentially means on one side you've got water you can't do much with, you have to just keep moving further and further and further inland. You can't build ring roads or circular systems which are easier to manage to get people on and off of without hitting a bottleneck. Is that the same for public transport? Is that partly why we're seeing these issues with the metro at the moment? Because it's just a straight line. Yes. Uh, Your your issue is you've got a very linear uh, city, very successful city, uh, but the metro used to be right in the centre of your development footprint all the way down the coast. But your development footprint has gone further and further inland. Uh, Of course, one solution is another metro, another linear metro, uh, a bit further inland, which would uh, assess the development and would also take the pressure off the existing metro. So we're looking at sort of expanding inland with the metro as well as the roads. How challenging then is it to link all of those lines together? How far away are we from a really integrated metro system that would allow us all to travel all across the city rather than just from one end to the other? Well, every city has this question. I actually think Dubai has a head start over many other cities because you are linear in shape. Also, you've got some very defined nodes along it. So um, really, I think you've got uh, a network forming already. Your problem is your development has moved a little bit away from the metro. Uh, You just need to keep the metro network uh, to to have good coverage of the city to make it competitive to alternatives. 
Now, we've got a lot of messages coming in. Now, one person, there's, uh, this is Omar. He says the issue with traffic is very simple to solve. The, we need to have more remote working to reduce traffic. Then we wouldn't need to build more roads, bridges and train tracks. Someone else has said, I feel like we're suffering now because these things were needed years ago. Shakeside Road is congested all the time. And when we have big events, such as at World Trade Centre, it gets even worse. The Metro now needs to expand. Julie says her commute recently on the roads has been horrendous. And Chippy's been in touch to say that scooters going on to the Metro could become an issue. That at the moment, a lot of people are using scooters for that kind of last mile to get to the Metro. That's that sort of last mile side of things. That's a challenge, isn't it, Graham, that we, we see all over the world? Oh, yes. And and you've got it more now that your development footprint has moved away from the metro alignment. Um, basically, people have to get there somehow. Um, scooters, yes, they're a new method, not, not suitable for everybody. Um, buses would be better, uh, good high frequency services. And this, this helps Im- improve the system. But they're not going to be as successful as having another line because... Being able to walk to that line, to and from it, uh, from where you want to go to and and your your destination, your origin, is going to be a much more successful one by having an expanded system. So we've got the blue line coming that is being developed at the moment. We've got road expansion projects going on. But I know that, I mean, congestion is is an issue in, in cities all over the world. And as I was saying earlier, I used to live in London and the London underground is significantly more busy than the, the metro here is at most times. How does Dubai compare to other global cities in terms of congestion on its public transport network? Uh, you are doing very well. Um, and you've got modern infrastructure. You have a driverless metro, uh, and metros that are driverless, automatic, have to have excellent uh, performance because otherwise you can't operate them. Um, And many other systems are much more unreliable and have older legacy infrastructure, such as London. London has 100-year-old equipment on them. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, I think your metro does have failures, but I think you've, we're talking, you know, you've had maybe 10 or something of, of failures of the system. I can tell you that in Melbourne, we have 22 a day. Wow. Uh, because we have very ancient infrastructure that falls apart. Uh, you know, some cities, and such as London, has a lot of those sorts of events. You're doing quite well. It, it's easy to complain about your own system, but when you look at it in relative to others, you're doing well. How much of a role does human behaviour play? Because I always think in Dubai, one of the biggest challenges that we have is the fact that we've got so many people from so many different parts of the world that there's no kind of one cultural norm or understanding that we perhaps rely on almost in an unspoken way in in other countries. Is there individual behaviours that we can take to reduce congestion on things like the metro? Is there a sort of universally understood queuing system? Yes, you're quite correct. In fact, when you're getting trains as quickly, as frequently as you are, every three minutes in the peak, um, the queuing and the delay, the, the boarding the train and getting people off the train is actually a new factor delaying the trains. Um, if you get crowds around doors, people can't get on, can't get off. Uh, now, some cultures rigorously manage queuing. Uh, you'll see in Singapore, in Shanghai, um, marks on the ground uh, explaining where people should stand waiting for trains. And you and you have a culture where you know that happens. In Japan, of course, we even have attendance at doors forcing people on and off because they have <laughs> such a big problem. Um, yes, you, you can do those alternatives, but you do need to get people to accept the rules and to teach them so they know. So how do you do that in a city like this, where you're talking about hundreds of languages, nationalities, a very transient population? OK, well, it's all about communication and explaining and, and, and education. Um Languages aren't too much of an issue. A lot of the indicators on platforms are pictorial rather than in a particular language. 
um, videos, YouTube, um, the usual communication methods. Another really successful method is to go to high schools and, and junior schools, you know, when the kids are younger, and just train them up on how to use it. Uh, even new visitors that arrive to the city can be given packs explaining how to do things. It just takes a bit of effort to explain things to people. And so for me, if I arrive at the metro tomorrow and I see a huge queue to get on or off a train or I'm worried that I'm not going to fit, what's the best approach? Should I be kind of pushing my way on, trying to fight my way on? Should I be waiting and hoping that other people don't push? What should I do as an individual that would make the biggest difference? Travel at a different time. (laughs) There you go. You heard it first. Professor Graham Curry there, Chair of Public Transport and Professor of Transport Engineering at Monash University in Australia. Thank you so much for joining us again, Professor. Always great to speak to Graham. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Hello and welcome back to The Agenda. And we're taking a look at some sports with a bit of a difference now. Now, we've been seeing a lot going on, I think it's safe to say, in Dubai. Recently, we had the team in from the SWAT Games. Yesterday, we were talking about the jet suit race that was going on down at the harbour. We've got the tennis going on. It is a very busy time in the city right now. But there is another sporting tournament kicking off today. And it's one with a bit of a difference, I have to say, because This one's a bit more focused on community, as it were, because what we're witnessing today is the start of the fifth edition of the Government Games. It's a tournament for people working for all sorts of government departments here and from all around the world. And today's the first day of this year's tournament. We're now going to speak to the man who is leading this event. Marwan Bin Essa is the director of the Government Games and he joins me now on Teams. Marwan, hello, how are you? Hey, hello, good morning. It's great to have you on. Tell me a bit, first of all, I'm not hugely familiar with the Government Games. Can you tell me what they're all about? So Government Games initiated in 2018 by His Highness Sheikh Hamdan bin Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, Crown Prince of Dubai, Chairman of the Executive Council. Gov Games is all about, when we started, it's all about one team, one spirit. It's all about team coming together to compete, to overcome obstacles. We started uh, 2018 until uh, 2019 with all the governors to come and compete. His Highness launched another category, which all the private sectors can be part of it as well. In uh, 2023, His Highness launched the uh, Battle of the Cities, where 28 cities will come to compete in Dubai. And now here in 2024, we announced the new category, which is the junior category. So now, as from 2018 until now, we really evolved and it's getting bigger. And so how many people are participating in this and where are they coming to Dubai to participate from? Okay, so basically the category of the Battle of the Cities, we have 28 cities representing uh, particularly their cities. Uh, example, City of London, City of Paris, City of Marseille. They are all here. As you as you noticed yesterday, we had the Burj Khalifa competition where 20 cities went and we had the fastest cities to climb the Burj Khalifa. To climb the Burj Khalifa? Yes, that was yesterday. Literally climb the Burj Khalifa? Literally climb the Burj Khalifa. I'm sorry, you're talking about just government employees from all over the world arrived in Dubai and they climbed the world's highest building. No, actually, they are not from <laughs> government. They have been selected and nominated by their cities to come and represent their cities to Dubai. So that's by itself uh, a category which is called the Battle of the Cities. OK, that's still fairly, <laughs> fairly major. How long did it take them to climb the Burj Khalifa? Well, we had a record. We had a team that uh, from Kotohara, Czech Republic, which, which made 27 minutes to climb 160 floors. Right. OK, so we're talking about some pretty fit government <laughs> employees then. In my head, when you talk about sort of games that you would take part in from your work, I'm thinking more egg and spoon, three-legged race, not climbing the Burj Khalifa. What other <laughs> events have you got going on? Because that's extreme. Yeah. Absolutely. So basically, uh, Gov Games is all about an obstacle where as a team you need to overcome. 
So the obstacles has a mental and it has a physical and it has fitness. So as a team, they need to strategize how to overcome these obstacles and reach to the end. So we have seven obstacles on ground. Each team will try to overcome these obstacles. They need to work at strategy. Uh, the, the theory behind Gov Games is that all about teamwork, strategy, um, if someone is really tired or someone cannot focus, they might lose the team. So we are replicating whatever we are doing today in the government and whatever we are doing as teams to overcome whatever situation we have, we replicate this on these obstacles. So here where, here where the, 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 the one team, one spirit comes and uh, it's not an individual, it's all about teams. So you will see teams... Uh, before the Gov Games, they try to work together, they strategize, they select the best of the teams they have, uh, if it was from the government sectors, if it was from the private sector, international cities, they do pick the best to represent them in the Gov Games. And how long do they train from? Because even if you are sort of the best of the best in your, your company or your organization, it sounds as though you're talking about some real athletic feats. Presumably, people are, are selected quite a bit in advance and do a lot of training for this. Absolutely. Uh, you will see people starting. Once we announce the date of the Gov Games, you will see government sectors starting to form their teams. So you will find the whole, um, let's talk about, for example, uh, RTA. You will see the whole employees of RTA. They are training hard and they are being selected the best seven people to represent that department to compete in the Gov Games. Now, this goes across the community as well, and the uh, community, the private sectors, and it goes across the cities as well. So they select the best out of the city, they select the best out of the uh, organization to represent them in the Gov Games. I mean, to be honest with you, it sounds like there's some serious bragging rights up for grabs. I'd be delighted to, to just be able to say that I won anything, but there's pretty good prizes up for grabs as well, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we do have uh, prizes for the, uh, uh, the 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 main award for the first place is 500,000 and the second place is 250,000 and the third place is 150,000. Now these amounts, go, uh, these amount goes across the categories that we have. So each category will battle by itself and they will get their award by itself. Now, the big surprise that we have, even the junior edition, we do have a 161,000 dirham uh, award for them. The first place is 70,000, the second place is 56, and the third place is uh, 7,000. And you mentioned there the, the juniors. Tell me a bit about that. Have you had young competitors taking part previously? And, and what are those youngsters doing? Presumably they're not climbing the Burj Khalifa. <laughs> Uh, yes, uh, in, in, in 2024, His Highness Sheikh Ham- in 2023, once we finish the edition, the fourth edition, His Highness Sheikh Hamdan bin Mohammed announced the junior edition. Now, the junior edition, you will have people coming from schools, community, gathering together to form uh, the best team that they have to represent them in the Gov Games. Honestly, since we started this, we saw big amount of schools coming up and forming teams from schools as well. And nevertheless, also from the community itself. So you will find a group of people uh, trying to uh, form a team to represent them in the Gov Games. And so how do people get involved? I mean, obviously it's too late for people to get involved to participate this year, but can they come and watch? Absolutely. We are open today by itself from the 29th until the 3rd of March. We are open from 1 until 11 o'clock at night. The experience is amazing. We do have gifts and awards. We do have Jeeps to give away for public as well. Um, We do have uh, um, a a nice uh, food court as well to serve. Gov Games is not about the experience of the athletes only. We also give the best experience to the public. And so where do people go to see it? Where are you based? Do they have to buy tickets? What are the logistics of that? So we are based in Festival City. Uh, We have signboards all over the streets. Once you cross the highway, you're immediately going to see it's going to take you to the Gulf Games. 
Gulf Games is always was without tickets. We don't have tickets. Anyone is welcome to come to the Gulf Games. Amazing stuff. I'll be bringing my little boy down this weekend to see everything that's going on. Thank you so much for your time. That's Marwan Bin Essa there, Director of the Government Games, which get underway in Dubai today. Hello and welcome back to The Agenda. And I want to know right now, do you know this song? No, I'm not surprised because nobody does. It's a mystery 17 seconds that appears to have opened up some sort of a black hole into pre-digital, pre-Google times. It was posted online back in 2021. And since then, almost 100,000 people have commented on discussion boards trying to trace its origins. Now, in the past few days, TikTok's gotten on the case and to no avail. Nobody knows. So how can a piece of music end up on the internet but remain a mystery, even in the days of Shazam? Yes, they did try to Shazam it, and no, they didn't find out that way either. So to find out how we could potentially identify it, earlier I sat down with Professor Joe Bennett. He's a forensic musicologist who teaches at Boston's renowned Berklee School of Music. And I began by asking if he'd heard the mystery clip. I have heard it, and like everyone else, I am intrigued. So let's call it the Call 92 track, because I don't think it even has a title. Uh, Call 92 is the anonymous internet user who first posted it online and started this mystery, uh, with the started the ball rolling with what uh, everyone is now so obsessed with on the internet, at least this week. Um, so as ever, as a musicologist, I like to jump, straight into the music so let's take a little listen to it and see what it sounds like here is the track 17 seconds long so that's what it is (laughs) 17 seconds of audio. Um, I don't know. Well, what, what are your thoughts, Jen? How do you respond to that? I mean, it sounds a bit like it's being played on a boombox from the 80s that's sort of seen better days, that has been in the attic for years. Yeah, I, so on a technical level, I think we're hearing two kinds of distortion there. We are hearing the sort of distortion of old tape, could even have come off like a, the soundtrack of a VHS audio tape, or it could have been recorded in air over, the, like through a speaker to a cassette tape. But we're also hearing some digital artifacts about the way it's been encoded for upload to online. We're hearing some sort of MP3-ish, low-res grunginess in there. So there's a lot in the mix before you can, a lot, lot of sort of garbage in the mix before you can really get to going to, to analyzing the music. But I think everyone on the internet seems to agree, and I certainly would agree that it sounds pretty 80s. Yes, very 80s, very childhood. Well, depending on one's age, of course. Yes, to me, that's <laughs> childhood. Uh, so I was in high school in the 80s. Uh, so in, in my... um music analysis classes at Berkeley, I would always get my students to say, so what can we objectively say about this song? You know, we don't care so much about whether pop music is quotes good or bad or any of that subjective stuff. What's actually happening in the music? So let's listen again and listen out for the instruments. So, fairly obviously, we've got an electric bass. You've got some sort of synths or keyboards. I can't really hear any guitars in the mid-range. Fairly standard rock backbeat drums. We've got what sounds like a double-tracked vocal. And then we've also got some vocal harmonies that come in about halfway through. Um, now, 
the internet sleuths have been trying to chase down what's really going on with the instrumentation. And people are saying they're narrowing the release date down to around about 1983, and I think I would agree with that. It sounds like sort of mainstream pop of that era. And there's been quite a lot of work has gone into it. Tracking vocal harmonies, it takes time. But even acknowledging that, I speculate that it might be a demo. And the two bits of evidence for that that I am speculating about is, one, we've never heard of it, right? So it means it never made any kind of release. But second, the vocal's out of tune. So, you know, that singer is not really on it on that final da-da-da-da-da. Uh, there's some moments that it's a little bit flat. Uh, so, I, so I speculate that it might be a highly polished, unreleased demo that somebody taped on a cassette. That's as far as I can get into the mystery right now. That's so intriguing. Now, you're saying recorded on a cassette, which obviously would make sense, but obviously we're listening to just 17 seconds of it that have somehow ended up on the internet. So how do we get to a point where we've got 17 seconds of digitized track with no footprints to how it ended up there? Right. Well, first of all, if it's a hoax, it's a hell of a lot of work to put into what what is not an especially remarkable hoax. And as ever with any, quotes, crime, you have to ask who benefits. What would be your motivation for going to all the trouble of producing this thing, grunging it up to sound 80s and then uploading it to the internet? So I don't think it's deliberate. I think it's authentically of its time and some forensic analysis suggests that it might come off a dvd but how do you get on the internet well of course you can digitize anything we all have phones most people have some sort of audio processing software on their computer it's relatively easy to take any analog source that is you know a speaker on an old bit of vinyl or an old dvd or cd player and hold a phone in front of it and record it and then put that on the internet. So it's not so much a mystery of how it got on the internet. It's more a mystery of like who put it up there and why, and what was its journey between 1983 and 2024? Where was it sitting all that time? I don't mean to sound naive, but my next question of course then is for whatever reason it's been digitized, it's ended up on the internet. Why can we not just, Google it. Why can't we point it at Shazam and outspits the results? Because I think that's what we're all kind of used to these days. And I think that's probably why people are so fascinated with this 17 seconds is the fact that it seems to exist almost entirely in a vacuum. I think you're absolutely right. And and this is the age we live in in 2024, isn't it? You know, everything, everything everywhere all at once to quote <laughs> this movie. Well, you know, all data is available to us. And now we've even got AI making it easier to Google stuff. We don't even have to put specific search terms in. But of course, that information has to be online in the first place. And so if you think of the streaming services, Apple Music, Spotify, Tidal, you know, all those kinds of things, they're huge huge repositories of tens of millions, actually hundreds of millions in Spotify's case, but they're not all the songs in the world. There's a lot of analog material, from, particularly from the 20th century, that just never got digitized and archived and doesn't exist in any kind of digital form. And we talk about Shazam. Well, what is Shazam actually doing when you point your phone at it? It's referencing a pre-existing database of usually copyrighted material that has been digitally distributed. So it follows that if you're not on that register, you can't Shazam it. And and of course, to the end user, because 99.9% of the time when we use a, a service like Shazam, we immediately find what we need because we're searching for a pre-existing bit of released music. But the very fact of this track being unreleased is, I suggest, what is driving the internet so crazy. There has been a break between the analog world and the digital one, and nobody built a bridge until now. (laughs) So on that basis, I'm running out of time with you, but I know your disclaimer at the start of this interview was that you are not going to solve a mystery that the internet has spent three years fruitlessly trying to get to the bottom of, but you are a forensic musicologist, which is the best job title in the world. 
what's your instinct telling you here? Will we get to the bottom of this? And and if so, how? Where would you start looking when this conversation's over if you wanted to find the answer? Okay. So first of all, I think it's authentic. If you were going to fake such a thing, it would be too much work. So how has it got on the internet? I suggest somebody's found some bit of analog recording or possibly DVD, as some people think, put a phone in front of it and put it on the internet. That much is not very much of a mystery. How will we find out its authenticity if we ever do? I think someone will come forward. Someone will say, I was the bass player in that band. I was at that session. There'll be some 60-something guy or gal out there that was in a band back in the day that cut a record that never really went anywhere, and they will want to tell their story. So I was going to say, if anyone on the internet is listening to this today and you know about that song, come forward and solve the mystery for us. Was it you? Are you singing on that track? Send us a message on 4001. I know that Professor Joe Bennett would love to hear from you. He's a forensic musicologist at Boston's renowned Berklee School of Music. Speaking to me there about this mystery that's got the internet all in a tiz. It is a piece of music that nobody can trace. It appears to have originated in a time before Google and it's got everyone a bit hot and bothered. The Agenda is live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1.